Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can check out our course platform at onecommune.com where you'll find programs from Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Brendan Burchard, Adrian Mishler, and many other brilliant personal development and wellness luminaries. Our courses span yoga, meditation, spiritual development, functional medicine, recovery, and social impact. Essentially, everything you need to be holistically well. Just go to onecommune.com. Okay, so my guest on the show today is Dr. James Gordon. Dr. Gordon is a Harvard-educated psychiatrist who is internationally recognized for using self-awareness, different forms of meditation, diet, and group support to treat psychological trauma. He has traveled to some of the most immiserated and war-torn places of the world, including Haiti after the devastating earthquake, Sub-Saharan Africa, Gaza, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in the wake of the mass shooting, New Orleans in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, Sonoma after the ravaging fires, and really there is almost no place Jim hasn't gone to help people heal from acute trauma. His work is done under the aegis of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, a nonprofit he started in 1991 in Washington, D.C., where he worked in both the Clinton and Bush administrations as chairman of the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy. And we have just launched a course with Jim based on his eponymously named book, Transforming Trauma. You can enjoy the first five days for free at onecommune.com transform. So in our discussion, Jim and I discuss common misconceptions about trauma, the biology of trauma, including the role of the gut, the components of the autonomic nervous system, and tools for healing trauma, including creativity, mindful eating, the microbiome, and Jim even leads us in a closing meditation. I've spoken to a lot of people who have dedicated their lives to helping others, and no one has dedicated themselves more than Jim. So I hope you enjoy his intelligence and munificence. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. All right, Jim Gordon, good to be with you. Thanks for making the time. It's good to be with you, Jeff. So I will say... Your book, Transforming Trauma, I, I want to stick it in every top drawer of every night table at every Motel 8 in the world, <laughs> because it has become, uh, over the past week, uh, my new Bible, and uh, I, I so deeply appreciate you writing it. And I hope that we can unpack a lot of the components to it, because it's uh, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of subjects to hover over, but I, I thought I'd start where you start, both in the book and in the course that, that we collaborated on, 
um, with the dispelling of two primary misconceptions about trauma. And this is obviously the work that you've dedicated the majority of your life to. Um, and, and I found these eye-opening uh, right away because there is a mythology that trauma is exclusively reserved for those living in the most immiserated, war-torn or impoverished areas. And I, I think you do a great job at dispelling that that is not a, a pathology reserved for some people. And then the second piece is that if you have been traumatized, then you're just permanently scarred. So perhaps as a means to kick off the conversation, you can tell us how you've begun to understand the nature of trauma in, in all of its ex expressions and address some of these mythologies. Sure. No, I appreciate that. And, and that is the way I started the book, started transforming trauma, because I think it's really important that we all of us understand that trauma is a part of life and not a part from it. The idea that trauma, which is a Greek word that means injury to the body, mind, or spirit, just comes, as you suggested, to those people who've been horribly abused or those people who are in the middle of wars, that's a very narrow and I would venture to say a modern notion. Uh, indigenous people all over the planet understand that trauma comes to all of us sooner or later and not infrequently. And so that they have developed ways of helping everyone in the community deal with the trauma. And, and I think if we transpose that to, uh, to the modern world and we just take a look at our own lives, if we just reflect on our own lives and the lives of people we know, it becomes clear that some people suffer trauma early in life. Those children who grow up in poverty or violence, not even if their parents are kind to them and good to them, they're still living in a world where there are tremendous threats every day. You think about you know, kids who don't know and parents who don't know if there's going to be enough food on the table and how anxiety provoking, how traumatic that is. Or children, little children who have to walk to school with gangs threatening them. It's, uh, it's, it's brutal. It is traumatizing. Or the kids who have serious illnesses when they're small, either hereditary or illnesses that have, you know, that have take them when they're small children. So that's traumatic. In young adulthood or midlife, most of us suffer trauma, whether or not we recognize it that way. I am um, at my 25th reunion at Harvard Medical School. Uh, I decided with the people who are planning the program that I talk about trauma. And I thought, well, what was the first trauma that I was aware of? And I realized it was my first year at Harvard Medical School. I was feeling, I am wondering, what am I doing here? I mean, I loved college. I went, I went to Harvard College. I had a great time. It was a wonderful place to exercise my intellect, my imagination. Medical school felt so rigid, rigid and regimented. The people were brilliant. Professors were brilliant. I didn't know who I was anymore. I was really kind of disoriented by the whole experience. And afterwards, what was so interesting is that in, in the course of my talk, I said, I, I, you, you guys, to my classmates, you all looked like you had it together. Afterwards, I would say, 
a quarter to a third of my class came up to me and shook their heads and said, no, I just looked like I had it together. <laughs> I was in worse shape than you were. So, or a breakup of a relationship, a serious relationship. Uh, it is devastating. And in midlife, you know, over half of American marriages end in divorce. I have yet to see a divorce that was not traumatic. As we get a bit older, of course, our parents, grandparents die or become seriously ill. That is traumatizing. And then if we don't experience trauma, then surely if we're fortunate enough to grow old, we experience it as we deal with physical frailty, with the inevitable loss of people we love. My brother died, for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, he died of COVID-19, as best I can tell. And we have to deal with our own impending death. So trauma is a part of life. And that is, on the one hand, it's perhaps threatening, but it's also reassuring that these, this is not something so extraordinary, and also that, that there's no way to deal with it, and also that it is expectable. And so when it comes, we shouldn't be quite so shocked. We shouldn't be quite so surprised. So that's number one. And the second point, that I make and, and, and that you made when you introduced me is that once we've been traumatized, that it's going to last the rest of our lives. Now, it is true that early trauma makes us more vulnerable to later trauma. And some of that, or much of it, is on a biological level. We're simply, there are changes sometimes in our chromosomes, there are changes in our physiology, changes in our psychology, which make us more vulnerable to not only to the same kind of trauma, but to other kinds of trauma. That is true. On the other hand, there are tools and techniques that we can learn, that anyone can learn, that can bring us back into balance after we've been significantly thrown off balance psychologically and physiologically and socially and spiritually by trauma. We can come into balance. And in fact, we can become more healthy and whole than we ever have been. We're not relegated to a kind of uh, dustbin or ash heap of, you know, continual unhappiness and lifelong psychotherapy or medication. No, not, not at all. That this path through and beyond trauma to what we're now calling post-traumatic growth is one that just about all of us can take. And, and that's uh, why I wrote Transforming Trauma and why I'm giving this course is to give people guidance on this path of hope and healing. Yeah, and it, it's so important because we're not really taught anywhere else how to deal with trauma or with grief. Um, certainly this is not a course I remember taking in high school or, or in college. And I think that's why this emerging field of, of work is so important. And I, there's a couple things that you touched on there that I wanna unpack because as you articulate, trauma can will inevitably occur in our lives. I think for children, and, and I have three, um, children are particularly susceptible to trauma or, or recurring patterns of stress associated with trauma uh, can hit children in a particular way because 
they are still developing. And I wonder if you can, because you've done so much work with children over time, and they may be a little bit less able to uh, apply some of the tools. So how do you think about children and addressing kind of traumatic events well, with them? you're absolutely right. The children, because of their developing brains, their developing social relations, they are more vulnerable to trauma and the traumatic events, whether it's a whether it's a war or a divorce or parents who are fighting all the time or major disappointment, they affect brain development more significantly than children. That's a reality, if you will, that's the bad news. The good news though, is that children's brains are more plastic, they're more flexible, they're more adaptable. And in fact, children can learn the techniques that I teach in transforming trauma better and faster than most adults. And they, because um, they don't have the sense that they cannot use their imagination. Mm. They don't have the inhibition, for example, about moving their bodies that adults do. So they're able to pick up on the techniques if they're taught to the kids in a way that's interesting and fun and engaging, they learn very fast and they can move through trauma quite quickly. And, and this is especially true of children who come from ho- homes that are, as the, as the physician Winnicott said, with, with a, not a good enough mother, a good enough father, a good enough home, average homes where they're taken care of. Then with that background, when a traumatic event happens, like the pandemic, they can move through it much more quickly and they can learn these techniques very quickly. I think the difficulty for the children who have the real difficulty are the ones who are being traumatized by their parents. Mm, Where the trauma is overwhelming and inescapable and where they're actually being betrayed by the people on whom they depend. Those kids have ongoing trauma that is much more difficult to reverse. Yeah, and just the continuity of that trauma makes it very, very difficult to escape. And one thing that you say really rings true just because I do have children, so I have everyday anecdotal experience with it, that they are more apt to be vulnerable than a lot of my contemporaries. We don't like to share our stories. We feel inhibited about that. We feel a sense of shame uh, associated with that. But at least my children feel a lot more open about sharing story. And in sharing story, people can see their own story in someone else's and they feel less alone. It seems like it is a way to process trauma and stress. I wonder just that idea, that notion of sharing story, is that helpful? Absolutely crucial. All of us who've worked in the field of psychological trauma for a number of years understand the vital importance of being able to share your experience with others. So the the program that I teach is a program we can do in transforming trauma in the course and in the book is a program we can do on our own. And we add so much to it when we share what we're going through with others. And and you're right, I think kids have that, it's easier, they're less self-conscious. We live in such a horribly self-conscious society. I've spent time with indigenous people and I'm, I'm, I'm smiling as I'm talking to you. Our listeners can't hear it. 
well, maybe they can hear me laugh a little because I'm thinking about some of the people I've spent time with every day, they share with each other what's going on. Often at breakfast, they would sit together, the women would sit together, the men would sit together, the teenage kids would sit together. What was your night like? How are things going with your husband? Have any dreams? How are your kids? So they get in the habit of sharing what's going on, which is so healthy. And, and, and I think that that's something that's, that's missing in our society. And it's so, so beneficial in general for living fuller, richer lives and being more connected to each other. And it's especially important if we're going through some kind of traumatic experience. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Before we started recording, you were asking me about how COVID had affected or impacted my life um, more physically. But my response was actually uh, a little bit different, which is, you know, we've established ritual in our family that was not there prior to COVID. You know, I live in LA and my kids are very active and busy and they're doing all sorts of wonderful things. But oftentimes in the evening, we're just like scattered leaves. And during COVID, we, we really grounded into a ritual of having dinner together every night. And uh, that seems like a very uh, old fashioned <laughs> kind of concept. Um, but it was really, really helpful because we would go around the table every night and really share. We have a kind of a silly game called Rosebud Thorn, where rose is you share the best part of the day, bud is you, you share something that was maybe had potential, but hasn't really manifested yet. And thorn is the thorn that stuck into your side on that particular day. And we would just do that almost de facto every night. And it was a really great way to just be in connection and alleviate the stress that my, at least my children had by, uh, with the isolation they felt and the lack of social contact that, that they had over the time. Or some, or some of your kids, uh, teenagers? Yeah, 16. And they, and they were willing to do it. They were willing to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just, once it becomes a ritual, uh, it loses all of the, uh, you know, all of the, the window dressing of, 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 uh, you know, shame or, or embarrassment or whatever it happens to be. It's beautiful. And, and, and the other thing that I want to highlight is that they are willing to talk about the thorns because often in many households, kids will just talk about, you know, what went okay, or just, they just say everything's fine, you know, kind of. And that's the, right. Especially when they're teenagers, that's the end of the story. Yeah. But the invitation to talk about what's painful is really important, and that's the beginning of trauma healing. Mm -hmm. That's the, is understanding that something is going on, that something is happening here, and that it's that it is causing some distress and being, and even if you don't completely understand what it is of at least being able to share what you understand. And that, then there's something that you can work with. Then you can use all these tools and techniques. They make sense because you say, oh yeah, something is happening to me. Just yesterday, I was seeing a patient who, you know, like, like those of us who are white collar people and able to work at home, he's been able to work at home, but I took his pulse. His pulse was pounding. He said, he's fine. I took his pulse and I said, hmm, your pulse is kind of fast and it's kind of pounding. He said, well, he said, it's true. 
He said, I felt a lot better after the election and after the inauguration, but still, this is Washington, D.C., after all. He said, but still, you're right. I am feeling tense. I am concerned. I'm concerned about my daughter. I'm concerned about when we're going to be able to travel again. I'm getting older. I'd like to be able to go places. So, but he didn't even completely realize what was going on. So I think that we need to tune into what's actually happening and the way you're giving your kids the opportunity to do and then and then share it. The, yeah. the other thing we can do that I, I want to mention right here is it's great to share with other people, but you can also write it down in a journal. And I, I don't know if you've been keeping a journal during this time, but when you keep a journal and you know, I teach this in, in the course, when you keep a journal and you write down what you're feeling, what you're going through, that in itself lowers your level of stress and lowers stress hormones and improves your mood. And there's been wonderful research done on it. And so simple, just 15 or 20 minutes a day of writing will do it. Yeah, well, I have been keeping a very public journal. <laughs> I publish uh, a 2,500 word sort of unveiling of me and my family life every every Sunday and uh and I connect my email to it actually and it's been just really an unbelievable connective experience and growth experience for me to share the stories with other people and then get the the influx that crests my inbox <laughs> uh every Sunday and Monday and it, it's been it's really been a huge part of getting through uh, this time. Um, I want to address many of the tools and, and modalities that you have developed to address trauma. But before we do that, uh, because those tools and modalities emerge often directly from the biological causes of trauma, I wonder if you can take some time to discuss the, the biochemistry uh, or the biology of trauma and, and maybe get at the basic kind of fight and flight response that has been, that is ancient and designed to be protective, but modern life has evolved since we've roamed the Serengeti. So maybe you can unpack a little bit of, sure. of that biology. And, it's, 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 and I hope nobody is intimidated by the word biology. <laughs> <laughs> or by the science, it's very simple, basically. When we are threatened, uh, and this response, the fight or flight response that you mentioned, has evolved over millions of years, quite literally. It's there in all vertebrates. Fish have it. Every animal with a backbone has fight or flight. And it's a response that was developed evolutionarily to deal with a predator. And it's what enables us to either escape a predator, a threat, or to fight against it. So it's built into, it's built into our genes and our chromosomes. Now, fight or flight is meant, as you suggest again, it's meant to be quickly turned on and quickly turned off. A classic example is that we have seen, perhaps at a video or a movie is of an antelope that is happily grazing on a maybe on the Serengeti plain in Africa or at a waterhole. A lion comes along and 
book the whole herd of antelopes running as fast as they possibly can away from the lion. And they have gone into flight. They're in the fight or flight response, but their genetic programming tells them, "Uh uh-uh, you don't fight a lion, you get out of there. So what's happening with the antelope? What's happening is blood pressure is going up, heart rate is going up, the big muscles on the body, the ones that enable the antelope to flee are activated and digestion is shut down. The whole focus is on life-saving, getting out of Dodge. So in humans, the same thing happens, except we go into fight or flight, not just from physical threats, but from emotional threats. So it's not just, um, you know, being worried that somebody's going to beat us up on the street. But if we start to become apprehensive, are we going to get COVID-19? We can go into fight or flight. What's going to happen to my job afterwards? How am I going to deal with my kids who are home and screaming and not wanting to look at the screen on which school is coming to? We go into fight or flight. And what happens with humans is that this whole panoply, because of these large brains that we have, of reactions and responses follow. So we um, we get more irritable, for example. We're staying in that state of fight or flight. Activity in the amygdala, that's A-M-Y-G-D-A-L-A, which is a means almonds in Greek. It's an almond-shaped portion of the emotional brain that's responsible for fear and anger. Activity there goes up. So it's firing away, that fear and anger center. Meanwhile, our body, our blood pressure is up, our heart rate is up. We may have stomach problems because we're digestion's kind of shutting down, and we may feel tension in our body because we're in fight or flight, but we're not running away. You know, we're just sitting in front of our screen or yelling at our kids or whatever we're doing. And the part of our brain that's responsible for thoughtful decision-making and self-awareness and compassion, the part of our frontal cortex, frontal part of the cerebral cortex that's responsible for that, is a bit shut down. So that's why we wind up being irritable and not able to concentrate and have difficulty sleeping and all of those come because fight or flight, which is meant to be turned on quickly as it is with the antelope and turned off quickly as it is with the antelope, hangs around. So in us humans. So the antelope, two minutes after its escape from the lion, if you look at the pictures on the Nature Channel or anywhere else, the antelope is happily grazing or drinking water. Fight or flight has come, it's done its job, and it's turned off. So digestion is once again on. The antelope looks placid. It's not wide-eyed, and um, and it's back in balance. We humans tend to carry the lion around with us long after the lion has disappeared. So this is what causes post-traumatic stress. Something has happened to us that's traumatizing, whether it's a divorce, a loss of someone we've loved, an experience of violence on the street um, that happened some time ago. 
We carry around the images of that. We have nightmares about it. We carry it around in our body and continue to be more or less in a state of fight or flight. Also, if the stress is ongoing, as it is in the pandemic, and I mentioned my patient who came to me, he sort of gotten used to being in a state of fight or flight. So he had to be reminded of it. The other reaction that comes when we're dealing with trauma, when the trauma is overwhelming and inescapable and fight or flight can't operate, we can't get away, we can't fight, is the freeze response. And the example that I like to give, because I saw it many times, is of the mouse who is caught by the cat. And what happens, I don't know if you have cats that catch mice for you. <laughs> we do. It, is the, the mouse is in the cat's jaw, and sometimes the mouse is dead because the cat has chomped down on her. But often the mouse is still alive, and she's kind of hanging limply from the jaws of the cat. And often enough, at least my cats, got bored. The mouse wasn't fighting back, so they put the mouse down on the ground, and the mouse, mousey shakes herself off and runs off to the mouse hole. So the freeze response, the shutdown, the kind of constriction and collapse of the body, putting out endorphins to numb the pain. That's come, it's done its job, and it's gone. In we humans, where the freeze response continues because the overwhelming stress and trauma continue, like with um, children who've been abused, seriously abused. Or for some people during the pandemic, people will say, I'm exhausted. Often those people are in a kind of state of being frozen. And what happens in that state is that we put out endorphins to numb ourselves to the pain. And we often take a distance, a kind of psychological distance from the pain and even from ourselves. Um, and I, 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 this can happen, the freeze response can happen when the trauma is continuous and feels overwhelming, as it does for some of us during COVID-19, or when we have experienced an overwhelming traumatic event and we continue to replay it in our mind. As far as we know, the mouse has no memory of being in the cat's jaw, but we remember what happened to us, and it comes back to us in our nightmares and in our dreams. And I, I've worked a lot, for example, with people who've been tortured in other countries by dictators. And what they say is when they were traumatized, and I've worked a lot with, with uh, people who've been raped and people who've been sexually abused, and they say that when it happened, and you can read this in the accounts of women who are coming out publicly, they say, they sometimes will say, I froze. I shut down. I didn't know what to do. And what they did is they physically, they kind of shut down. They kind of were maybe hunched over or closed off. Psychologically, they took a distance and they were like numb and unable to speak, unable to protest because they were in a state of freezing. The people who were tortured, where the trauma is so overwhelming, the ones I've spoken to will say, I left my body. I was, on the, I was on the ceiling watching the torture being done, and I didn't feel the pain. 
And what you see continuing, whether it's women who've been sexually abused or people who've been tortured, is that many of them continue in that frozen state, Mm. sometimes exhausted or much more tired than you would expect them to be, and shut off emotionally from other people and chronically mistrustful. And they have a sense that the mistrust came from these traumatizing events, but they don't know what to do. And they keep themselves apart from other people because they're so afraid that the same thing is going to happen again, and they just don't trust anymore. So those are the two basic biological responses. And the work in, uh, in our commune course and in the book, Transforming Trauma, it begins with helping everyone to create antidotes to the fight or flight response and to the freeze response and to come back into physiological and psychological balance. And the techniques are pretty simple, pretty straightforward, and pretty easy for anybody to do. Well, thank you. And I want to jump into those techniques. I think there's a few things that I'd just love to hover over just for a moment before before we dive in. Um, one is this notion of dis, dis I think it's you call it disassociation or dissociation, right? Um, which is this disconnection that we have from our thoughts and, and feelings and, and memories that can linger and from our body and from our body. And it's it's interesting because, and I don't know if this actually plays into any legitimate theory, but I've seen, for example. Uh, possums play dead and they go into freeze mode. Exactly. When they then move out of threat or out of danger, they shake. And it's almost as if somatically they're removing the stress uh, from from their body uh, and animals seem to be able to have that ability. But we humans, and this may be the the double-edged sword of, of consciousness, um, manage to bring those memories along with us. Sometimes we seem to suppress them, um, and, and other times, you know, we can avail ourselves of of the tools that you provide to more adequately process them and literally somatically remove them from our, our body. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that how how stress gets stuck and maybe even as a uh, addendum to that talk a little bit about the gut because this was one part of your book that i found absolutely fascinating enlightening mind-blowing um around how trauma disrupts digestion and leads to intestinal permeability and inflammation that can then have uh, begin this cycle of having continued detrimental impacts uh, on the brain and the nervous system. Sure. And, 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 and it makes sense to tie those together because trauma affects every cell in our body. Every There's continual communication among all the organs and cells in our body. So when we're traumatized, the fight, both the fight or flight and freeze response uh, directly or indirectly affects every single physiological function. Now, as you say, 
when a possum playing possum, that is a form of freezing. It's like the mouse. The possum gets all the credit, but mice can do it too. The mice is <laughs> frozen. And, and also, um, even when an animal doesn't go into full-blown freeze response, which is the last ditch survival response, when an animal has been in fight or flight, it will also, after that crisis is over, it will shake itself off. So if you go, you walk your dog, your dog meets another dog, they're growling at each other or biting each other, whatever they're doing. After it's over, often the dog will shake itself as well. So the shaking is a way of climbing back into a kind of higher state of physical and psychological balance. And it's there in all just about all animals that I, that I, you know, at, at least land to dwelling animals. I can't speak to the amphibians and the fish, but I've seen it pretty much in, in all land dwelling animals that I've noticed. Um, in humans, this, the same is also true. The shaking of the body can also help to free us from both the agitation of fight or flight and the shutdown of the freeze response. And some indigenous people are wise enough to know and use this. The best known are the Kalahari Bushmen, who regularly shake their bodies. It's a part of hygiene. It's a part of staying in balance, just the way we may go to the gym or work out on a bicycle or go for a walk. They shake their bodies regularly. And this is very much a part of the program of, of trauma healing that, that I teach in Transforming Trauma. And it's become increasingly accepted, increasingly widely accepted by many people uh, in, in the psychotherapeutic community. The Peter, Peter Levine is somebody whose name is associated with this and has done very good work with this. This is not something that should be looked at in isolation. This should be part of everyone's program of trauma healing without exception. And it's not, I'm not deprecating in any way either the meditation techniques I teach or the guided imagery or nutrition, which we'll come to, or self-expression, connecting with others. And I would say, or psychotherapy for that matter, but working with the body giving us an opportunity to shake loose the trauma that's lodged in our bodies and giving our bodies a chance to express themselves needs to be a fundamental part of our healing from trauma and of our keeping ourselves in balance in an ongoing way. Now, moving on to the, to the other question that you raised about the effects of trauma on our gastrointestinal tract and what we can do about them. There's a whole chapter, and it happens to be the longest chapter in Transforming Trauma, which is about the trauma healing diet. And this is very important. And it is neglected by 95%, maybe more, of, every, of therapists who work with trauma. And it's a very serious mistake. Because what happens when we're traumatized is that every aspect of digestion from this, what the gastroenterologists or the nutritionists would call the cephalic phase. That's a cephalic is a fancy Greek word for head. 
the thinking part of food, the way we think about food, the way we make food choices, that's disrupted. We eat, so we're drawn to comfort food because we know from experience it relaxes us, it quiets us down, makes us feel a little more peaceful, a little bit happier. And it does. The problem is that a short-term relief and a short-term benefit, if you keep on eating a lot of comfort food, it's going to cause all the long-term problems we know about. Too much sugar and salty food and fatty food will cause hypertension and diabetes and make us anxious and make us depressed in the long run. So that's food choices. But we also eat fast. So we're swallowing air and our stomach can't do the job it's meant to do. We're also interfering with our small intestine where most of our nutrients are absorbed. And we're interfering with that in, in several ways. One of them, I'll just mention two of them. One of them is that the cells that line the small intestine, they're called endothelial cells, are normally very tightly packed together. They have what's called tight junctions. When we're under stress, the cells tend to separate and parts of our food that are not meant to go into our bloodstream, that are meant to be further digested, cross these loose junctions, go into our bloodstream and can cause inflammatory reactions everywhere in our body, including in our brain. And then one of the molecules that's most often seen and the biggest culprit is gluten. So even if we're not sensitive to gluten before we're really stressed out, we may well become sent. This doesn't mean we have celiac disease. It means these tight junctions have opened up and gluten molecules that don't belong in our bloodstream, that don't belong in our joints or our brain are leaking out and going everywhere in our body and can cause everything from what we call arthritis to what we call depression or anxiety, depending on where they go. Another disruption that regularly happens with chronic stress and trauma is in the microbiome. And in the last few years, it's become a, you know, we've become much more familiar with the microbiome, which is a word for the trillions of bacteria that inhabit our intestine, small intestine and large intestine. When we're under chronic stress, when we've been traumatized, to simplify a bit, the good bacteria are suppressed. There get to be fewer of them. The bad bacteria multiply. And this is not just a matter of academic interest. When that happens, the messages that the vagus nerve, which, uh, which goes to and from our digestive tract, the messages the vagus nerve brings back to the brain are compromised. The vagus nerve is responsible as the antidote to the fight or flight response. Also, the vagus nerve, when it's working effectively, helps the brain rebuild itself after trauma and stress. The vagus nerve activity is inhibited and diminished when the microbiome is out of balance. And so the brain that has already been stressed out and traumatized and as, a, as I said earlier, the parts of the brain that need to rebuild themselves don't have the ability to easily do it because of what's happening in our intestine. So 
All of which is to say that part of trauma healing is eating a diet that is essentially a healthy diet. And there are many different kinds of healthy diets. And you can read about it in Transforming Trauma. And there, there are lots of other books. It could be a vegetarian, could be vegan, could be a diet that includes, that is an omnivore's diet, including many different kinds of food. As long as you're eating a diet that's as unprocessed as possible, as balanced with vegetables and fiber and fruits, as well as protein and, uh, and fats, healthy fats, um, eating a healthy diet and adding some basic supplements like omega-3 fatty acids that are in fish oil or flaxseed oil, uh, adding some um, probiotics, that is, those are the good bacteria that are in our intestine, making sure we're not deficient in vitamin D3, which is really important for dealing with stress, and adding a multivitamin, multimineral. Well, just even those basic hints, and I go into this much more in transforming trauma, can help to bring us back into balance so that we can deal with the stress we have experienced, and it makes us more resilient to deal with whatever stress may come to us later on. Yeah, thank you for that. I. Um... Certainly that impulse to sprint to the cabinet and reach for comfort food is, um, is tantalizing um, when we're experiencing some degree of stress. And I, I think that that has not been uncommon, for example, during COVID, um, you know, where in people's uncertainty and maybe there's not as much stuff to do out in the world, they can run to the refrigerator or the freezer and, you know, pull out that pint of, of Haagen-Dazs and sure. spend, spend too much time in front of Netflix devouring it. We don't do that because we're, we're dopes. We do it because it does, it does decrease our level of cortisol, the major stress hormone. It right. increases the level of serotonin that calms us down it increases endorphins so we don't feel the anxiety and the pain so much. The crucial thing, there are two, two pieces here. First of all, or three really, one is understand that when you're going for comfort food, it's under, understand that it's understandable. That yeah. there's, there's a reason why you're doing it. That's number one. Number two, experiment with having three tablespoons of Haagen-Dazs and not three pints or one pint. And see what happens if you eat it slowly and mindfully. And we do teach this very much in the course. If you can eat slowly and mindfully, it's okay. And you will be satisfied. I, I can attest to this. Um, eating three tablespoons, which is not my nature. I'm somebody who like, really loves to eat. But I eat those three tablespoons and I do feel calmer. I do feel more relaxed. I'm getting the benefit. And then the third point is have compassion for yourself. If you do binge, if you do eat that whole pint or even a quart, just, just remember, okay, I did it. Maybe I'm, I don't have to do it next time. Next time, let me experiment with three tablespoons instead. Yeah. And also to your earlier point, eating slowly allows your body to develop uh, or generate the enzymes that will allow you to digest the food properly so it doesn't actually 
rot and ferment <laughs> um, in your gut and, and cause further issue. Right. And also, if you eat it slowly, if you generally eat more slowly, then there's time for your stomach to say, hey, buddy, I've had enough. <laughs> you may be eating because you're anxious, but I'm here to tell you, I'm your stomach, and I'm here to tell you it's enough. If we eat so fast, there's no time for the stomach to give us those signals. Yeah. And the last bit on, on diet, before we move into some of the other tools, uh, and you point this out eloquently in the book is that you don't need to have endless disposable income to eat well. And oftentimes, you know, the whole paycheck or, or, or the availing of, of good, high quality food has been cubbied, you know, for, for the affluent, uh, for people that just can afford, you know, to, to spend endless disposable income on food. And certainly there is a disparity within our country and of course around the world around accessibility to healthy food. But you also suggest some ways that people can eat well without spending a tremendous amount of money. And I, I think that that's important because if we're gonna address trauma, we need to make that available to everybody. Yeah, no, that's a very, very important point, Jeff. I think um, it is it is true that if you have more money uh, and if you live in an affluent neighborhood, uh, it's much easier than if you don't have as much money and you live in the food deserts that so many people who who don't have a high income live in. That it's much so much easier. However, we've been working in communities that. Um, that where people don't have much disposable income for, for many, many years. And so we've developed um, ways of helping people to think through uh, how they can get healthier food and how they can prepare it in a way that's delicious and, and, and good for them. So everyone can do it. It requires some education and requires some, some effort for all of us. I mean, basic idea is, if, if you're fortunate enough to live in a place where fresh food is available, and that's a bit of an if, and that's really hard. Some of these food deserts where people live, uh, or for example, on uh, Indian reservations where we've worked, where it's bloody hard to get yeah. healthy food. Um, so you have to really put out a, a lot of effort. However, the, the sort of ground rules are where eat whole foods. Don't eat the processed food. Uh, and cook from scratch. So there's a lot of, lot of things. I mean, we can, there are recipes uh, that are there on our, on our website, the Center for Mind-Body Medicine website, cmbm.org. And pretty soon we're going to be coming out with a whole course that we're going to, that we've developed for a hospital system that we want to make widely available. Mm. But Get as much whole food, as much fresh food as you possibly can. And also, you don't, it doesn't have to be the most beautiful food. Uh, it's possible to eat those things that they put out and they say, well, you know, these are a couple days old and they don't look as beautiful. You know, that's why they're lowering the price to half price or less. 
It, they taste perfectly good. And it's a matter of beginning to use a little ingenuity with cooking and starting to use some spices, starting to use herbs. One, one of the things is we've, we've forgotten what our ancestors knew about cooking. Even when I was growing up, whatever it was, 70 years ago when I was a kid and I was growing up, everything was cooked every day. You know, we went to the <laughs> went to the store, got fresh food, and and cooked it. That was, and, and uh, you know, it was a it was a well-to-do neighborhood. But it, but everywhere in New York at that time, there were stores selling food. So and now you've got to find a place. Um, there are ways. There are collaboratives. There are cooperatives that are springing up all over. There are farmers markets. Those are places I would go. And I, and I would stock up on food. There are a lot of foods that can be preserved perfectly well if you put them in the refrigerator or you keep them in a dark place. Uh, I'm During the pandemic, I've only been shopping every three or four weeks. And occasionally my, my potatoes start sprouting a little bit after, yeah. during that time, but they taste okay. I'm, I'm here, sweet sweet uh, potatoes, right? <laughs> yeah, sweet potatoes are a bit easier. And so... It, and then some of the, the guidance about that, about that uh, eating in a healthy, inexpensive way is there in the chapter on a trauma healing diet. But, but I think what we have to, to, to remember is we, we, don't, we don't need to have some of the foods that we're accustomed to having. We don't need to have, we eat so much more meat, for example, than, than we need to have. And we can cut down on that and therefore cut down on, on some of the expense. We could move in a healthier direction, move and then say, chicken is pretty inexpensive. And, you know, we can get chicken and we can prepare chicken in a variety, in a variety of ways. Some fish, for example, fish like mussels are very good for us and they're very inexpensive. Most of the rich people don't want to eat mussels anyway. So mussels are pretty cheap still. So you can, and you can find interesting ways to cook them. Some fish is not terribly expensive. Eggs, are a good source of protein, and they're not so expensive. It doesn't have to be beef and, and pork all the time. Right, yeah. I I read a number of times how you stress the importance of omega-3s and its relationship to, to depression um, and stress, and uh, certainly fish is a good, proper source of omega-3s. Uh, beautiful yeah. source, best yeah. source. And populations where they're, they're bigger fish eaters have a lower incidence of depression. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I will, before we move on from the, the mindful eating piece, I will say one of the um, pieces that I found really, really helpful in the book is almost this cheat sheet of organic foods versus non-organic foods. And that some vet, fruits and vegetables are grown with so many, so many pesticides and oftentimes sprayed crops are sprayed with glyphosate and other agents that undermine the nutritional value and obviously erode the soil and have all sorts of other deleterious impacts. But there are some fruits and vegetables that if you can't afford to buy all organic, that seem to be less impacted um, by, by pesticides and being grown in a, in a non-organic um, fashion. And I'll put those in, I'll put that, those two lists in the, yeah. uh, in the, in the show notes. Cause I thought it was. The lists, the yeah. lists are there in transforming trauma. I have the environmental working group to thank for that. 
So mm -hmm. they have, and they have the latest updates on their website about what you can safely eat and, and not. It's, but but in, in transforming trauma, it's there. That information is there and available to everyone. Yeah. So let's talk a, a, a little bit about some of the other tools for managing stress, you know, particularly uh, different forms of meditation that you leverage in, in working with people. Sure. Well, essentially, essentially meditation is essential. <laughs> meditation comes from the same Sanskrit and Greek root word as medicine. And it means to take the measure of and to care for. And, um, Indigenous people, as well as the practitioners of the high classical healing systems of medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, Indian Ayurvedic medicine, the Greek Hippocratic medicine from which our own modern medicine comes, they all understood that meditation was essential to maintaining good health because meditation is what brings us into balance physiologically, Psychologically, it makes it easier for us to relate to, to connect with, to bond with, to appreciate other people. There are three different types of meditation. There are thousands of techniques, and none is any better or any worse than any other. And if anybody tells you this is the one you have to do and only this one, head in the other direction would be my suggestion. That's not, that's dogma. That's not wisdom. <laughs> right. These different meditation techniques were developed at different times uh, in different places by different societies to meet different needs and concerns. There are, however, three basic categories. There's um, concentrative meditation, focusing on a sound or an image. Uh, these are part Concentrative meditations are part of all the world's major religious and spiritual traditions. So you could be mantra meditation. Mantra means sound in Sanskrit, focusing on a sound. Could be uh, focusing on, on an image. You could focus on looking at the ocean or indeed looking at a video of, or a picture of the ocean. That's a concentrative meditation. Repetitive prayers like our Father, or Ilalahu Ilalah, or Shema Yisrael, or Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Repetitive prayers are technically concentrative meditations. As far as we know, they're seven, eight thousand years old. They may be older. Next kind is mindfulness meditation. We're talking about mindful eating. Simply eating slowly and becoming aware of thoughts, feelings, sensations as they arise. This, as far as we know, mindfulness comes from Siddhartha Gautama, who became the man we call the Buddha, the man who woke up. And this is about 2,500 years ago. And he said, this is my method. My method is becoming aware. Mindfulness, vipassana, again, is the Sanskrit name. The third kind of meditation is the oldest kind all indigenous people do this, and it's, uh, these are expressive meditations, and they are fast, deep breathing, the shaking and dancing that, uh, that I teach in the course, that I teach in, the, in the Transforming Trauma in the book. 
makes use of that shaking response that we were talking about earlier, that is the natural response of animals when they're dealing with a, a situation that's been overwhelming, that's called fight or flight or caused freeze, but also adding to that a time for the body to just express itself freely. So the shaking begins, shaking loose, the tension, the shutdown body, bringing energy into the body, and then a couple minutes of slow, deep breathing and being aware of what's happening with the breath and the body, and then movement to music that energizes and inspires us. So that's a three-stage expressive meditation. So all of those are useful. And all of those are part of the, the, the program and the course of, of transforming trauma. And again, it's not that anyone is better. They're all useful in different ways for different aspects of the trauma we've experienced or the stress we're undergoing. Hmm. Yeah, and there is also a link between these meditative practices and emptying the mind such that creative expression can emerge. Um, and I know that this is a, another component of what you teach, of being able to facilitate the connections between the potentially traumatized and emotional part of the brain and the more expressive part of the brain. And, and that connection can sometimes become clogged or um, and so you often employ exercises such as drawing exercises or guided imagery and I wonder if you could talk about those and the nature of them a little bit sure um, basic idea is I want to sort of start at the sort of foundation is creating some physical and psychological balance so we can make use of these innate capacities that we have, of our imagination, our intuition, our capacity to express ourselves, as well as our innate intelligence. If we're in a state of fight or flight, we're in a life-threatening situation. This is no time to, you know, sit down and read Shakespeare or, <laughs> or for that matter, do, you know, express ourselves in a, uh, in, in words to other people or, or draw what's coming to our imagination. So we bring ourselves into balance and then we can use all these tools so much more effectively. And so the ones that, uh, that we use in the course that I teach in the book, Transforming Trauma, include what we were talking about earlier, writing in a journal, um, expressing ourselves to other people, using drawings to bypass the conscious censorship that sometimes comes with words and mm. to just see what comes out on the page when we draw ourselves, or draw ourselves with our biggest problem or draw ourselves with our problem solved. Um, allowing us to move freely so that we can express ourselves with our bodies, using written exercises. And there's one I teach, a dialogue with a symptom, problem, or issue, which mobilizes our intuition and our imagination to help us look at things in a fresh way, not in a purely rational way, but in an intuitive, imaginative way. Or guided imagery, guided mental imagery, to 
can help us draw on the vast reservoirs of wisdom that we have inside us that normally most of us don't access. But if we can get into a place of relaxation and calm and quiet, we can open up our minds to the deep inner knowing that we have that can help us solve problems that have been frustrating us. And so I teach the safe place and wise guide imagery in the course and in transforming trauma so that people can make these tools a part of their daily life. I use these tools of the imagination regularly. Whenever, you know, when I'm wondering about a difficult situation, maybe there's a difficult situation at work, a decision I have to make in my personal life, I calm myself down, I quiet myself with soft belly breathing, and then I go to a place that feels safe or comfortable in my imagination. And once I'm in that place, I let a guide come to me who's emerging from my imagination. It could be a person or an animal or figure from scripture or a figure out of myth. And I have a dialogue. And it may sound strange to some of the people who are listening to us, but this is what people have done ab originally from the time that humans began. They would go to this intuitive place and they would get help with solving problems. Why shouldn't we make use of this incredible sort of reservoir of talent we have we have inside us with this great this great wise being that exists in every one of us that can answer these questions that vex our conscious mind yeah. so all of these tools and techniques and there are about 15 or 20 that i teach they're all useful and you may like the wise guide imagery somebody else may like doing drawings a third person may like doing a written dialogue with a symptom or a problem or issue, they all work. And the whole idea is for people to experiment with, with as many as they'd like, and then to see which ones work for you. Because you're, we're all different from each other. And so the techniques that we prefer are going to be different. Yeah. Well, circling back to the beginning of the conversation, when you were dispelling the second myth, which is that trauma scars us for life and there's no redemption and there's no resurrection and you know we're doomed to this fate obviously in your work you have been able to leverage a lot of these practices and modalities um that 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 really dispel that notion completely and i know that you've worked in virtually every corner of the world right from sub-Saharan Africa to Gaza and Israel and working with the, the, the folks, um, you know, in the aftermath of the, of the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman uh, Douglas or uh, the school and also after uh, many of the, the fires that ravaged, you know, California. And I, I wonder if you could articulate an example of this kind of redemption or this healing. Um, because I know right now, obviously, what just happened in Colorado um, with another mass shooting and people going through very acute trauma. Um, and I think, again, to kind of go back to story, maybe you could ground this 
optimistic view of of redemption in in a story um, that you had firsthand or, or the uh, experience with that can that can illustrate the the power of utilizing these tools. Sure, um, and and as you say, I have worked during wars with people who where the bombs are still falling. And I've worked with war traumatized veterans and war traumatized civilian populations. And after this Parkland school shooting, which you mentioned in, uh, uh, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, what's, and I don't know yet if we'll be working with the people in, uh, in Colorado, but I know that I and my team at the Center for Mind Body Medicine are working with people who are affected by who are in the capital on January 6th. Mm. And so um, with both the police and the Congress people and staff members and others. So I want to tell you a little story because I think it's illustrative about a congressman I'm working mm. with. And he was in the gallery in the House of Representatives. And uh, there were people... Uh, probably everybody who's listening to us knows there were people there who wanted to kill the Congress, the Congress, people in the Congress who were storming, they had weapons, they were bent on destruction. And he was in, he was in there and, and he, like others, were, were terrified. And there were people who were texting family members and saying, I'm not sure I'm going to come out of this. Uh, they had to they were being protected by Capitol Police who had their weapons drawn. It was a very, very scary situation. He was frozen afterwards. He said, I didn't realize, he said, I just shut down. I, I couldn't feel anything for two days. And then as I started to look at the images of what had happened, I became incredibly anxious. And he began to have anxiety attacks. So he couldn't get his breath. He was all tense. He was in pure fight or flight mode. He was irritable. He wasn't sleeping very well. Uh, he couldn't concentrate. He kept having replaying images. And every time he saw what had happened, he would be triggered and he would re-experience that. He would have anxiety attacks. So a, a, a mutual friend who's also a congressman suggested that he be in touch with me. And in the very first session, uh, well, very first session, uh, he was in a car. So I told, I, I said, listen, I'm going to send you a copy of my book because I want you to start doing soft belly breathing. But I don't want you to close your eyes while you're driving in the car. <laughs> but uh, but I, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you, you can come through this. And that's something that everybody who's listening to us needs to know. I have worked with people who have seen members of their family massacred, who have not that they ever stop grieving, not that they ever stop sadness, not that it ever stopped being horrifying, but they have reclaimed their lives and have gone on to live full, uh, productive and loving lives. So I say this at the beginning, as I said to this congressman, you can come through this. Uh, I've worked with thousands of people who have come through this. 
And there is a plan for doing this. And the beginning is, first of all, you recognizing what's happening to you, that this is a normal response to an utterly abnormal situation. You're not crazy. You don't need to take pills. You don't need to be in psychotherapy for the rest of your life. There are ways that that I can teach you um, that will help you move through the situation. And what I'm going to provide you for a while is an opportunity to talk about what's going on. And I will teach you how to move through this situation successfully. So the next time we met, which was a couple of days later, when he wasn't driving, uh, I'd sent him a copy of Transforming Trauma. Uh, I taught him soft belly breathing. And what I taught him was that we can do this just for a couple of minutes here, but I, I spent about 10 or 12 minutes with him. And in the course in commune, I, I teach this along with teaching all the physiology in 10 or 12 minutes. But just right here and now, we can slow down a bit. Allow our breathing to deepen. Breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth with our belly soft and relaxed. And I said to the congressman, just as I'm saying to you and to everyone who's listening to us, this is a concentrated meditation. And I want you to focus on the breath, to concentrate on the breath coming in through the nose and out through the mouth, on your belly being soft and relaxed, and on the word soft as you breathe in, and belly as you breathe out. And as you do this, feel your whole body relaxing with each exhalation, each breath. Feel yourself relaxing a little bit more with each breath. Deepening this experience of relaxation, this concentrated meditation, by focusing on the breath coming in through your nose and out through your mouth, on your belly being soft and relaxed, and on the word soft as you breathe in and belly as you breathe out. If thoughts come as they will, let them come, notice them, and let them go. Gently bring your mind back to soft, Just a couple more slow, deep, soft belly breaths. Okay, open your eyes and let your attention come back in the room. How do you feel? <laughs> I feel great. I'm not sure I can continue 
to perform my role as podcast host, but I do feel relaxed. <laughs> Great. And so did the congressman. And that was first because that's time. more important than my role. <laughs> oh, both of you are important. Everybody, everybody's important. But this, yeah. For him, it was the beginning. He, he saw he could, just as you are, that you can make a difference. You can make a difference in how you feel. So one of the terrible things about his trauma and trauma for all of us is we often feel we can't do anything about it and it's never going to change. So he right. saw in that session, I can make a difference. And maybe, as I suggested to him, and as his mind had already registered, because the mind works this way, if I can make a difference in one way, with one technique, maybe I can make a difference with other techniques. So he began to do the soft belly breathing, 10 minutes sometimes, three minutes sometimes, four minutes sometimes, doing it regularly every day, and the, and he started to feel some freedom from his anxiety. When we talked about, he said, well, yeah, but what if, what if it happens again? What if I really get all tensed up? And how do I keep that from happening? And what do I do if that happens? I said, ah, if that happens and you can't sit still, that's when shaking and dancing comes in. So I taught him. <laughs> I taught him how he, he, this second visit, he was in my office. And uh, we got up and I showed him how to shake and dance, just as I do in the course in Commune, just as I teach in, the tra in Transforming Trauma. So we did shaking and dancing together. And now he, start, he said, that's great. I, I, I got it. You know, that's kind of weird, but it's great. <laughs> so he started doing both of those. And he, he after within a week or so more, he's never had another anxiety attack. He's come into wow. balance when he starts getting anxious. Sometimes he'll do soft belly breathing. Sometimes he'll do shaking and dancing. He does soft belly breathing several times for a few minutes every day. Working in Congress is a high stress job. And so he's come into balance and he can deal with all the responsibilities that he has and deal with people who upset him. Because one of the things that happened he got very angry at the other people in Congress who had egged on the rioters, who'd yeah. encouraged them. Yeah. And he's now found a way to deal with them in a much more balanced way, to be very straightforward about what happened and not to pretend that everything's okay, but not to just be yelling and screaming at them either. And this state of balance has made it possible for him to use many of the other techniques that I teach, including the wise guide technique, which was also extraordinarily important for him. So, and this is the way, this is one story of one person among thousands. And this happened with, you know, using a couple of techniques and coming into balance. And because he was more in balance, he could use the wise guide. He could use the other techniques so much more easily. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. James Gordon. Be sure to enroll in his commune course, Transforming Trauma, for free at onecommune.com transform. And you can keep up with all of Jim's work at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine at CMB.
cmbm.org. That's cmbm.org. And feel free, as always, to drop me a line directly at jeffk at onecommune.com. And if you feel inclined to make my mother proud, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, if it's good. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.